We've been going through the book of Acts recently, um, and Acts was written by Luke, the same man who wrote the gospel of Luke. It's really a continuation of, um, of his gospel in a lot of ways. And it's the account of the beginning of the church after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. So last week, uh, Pastor Eric led us in looking at the boldness of the early disciples and how they proclaimed the gospel and how they prayed for people. And in fact, the uh, previous passage we looked at in Acts 4 ended um, with the believers having prayed for boldness as they uh, recognized the resistance that they were beginning to face, uh, that, that there were those who were opposed to that, who would throw them in jail, uh, who did not want them to preach the good news. And so they... Um, began to pray for boldness as they to continue to preach in light of that resistance. So this morning, we'll continue in Acts chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 32. It says on. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> what, what, what's really is they probably pressed the button back there. It just made me feel like, no, 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 give me credit. All right, thanks. Um, yeah, so I, I forgot that Eric always puts that up first. Uh, so there's some scripture in today's sermon. A large chunk of it is we're going to walk through the rest of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5 in Acts. Um, so starting with Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 32, uh, Luke writes that all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. I think this is fascinating to be the text that follows up immediately after the believers pray for boldness. Uh, would you expect, because I would not expect to immediately be told that they became bold in their generosity. <laughs> they prayed for boldness to proclaim the gospel, and the next thing we learn is that the Spirit empowered them to give, to give of their wealth, their resources, for the sake of others. I think it's helpful uh, to keep in mind some of the context of who wrote this and who it was written to. If you, if you recall, uh, both the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke were addressed to someone, to Theophilus. Luke calls him most excellent Theophilus. Uh, most likely he was a, either a Roman official or someone of somewhat high standing in Roman society. So he's writing to someone who has some wealth, has some standing, has some clout. And Luke himself, uh, he's highly educated. He, we know him as the, great, as the physician, the beloved physician. Um, he's, so he's well-traveled. He's been tra- he travels around with Paul. Um, I don't know if you know any doctors, but I'm pretty sure even back in the day, doctors did all right for themselves financially, just like they do today. Um, so Luke is also someone who is coming from some amount of means. Kevin DeYoung points out that Luke was not a poor man writing to poor people that together they might denounce the rich. It's much closer to the truth to say Luke was a rich man 
writing to another rich man and people like him in order to show how the rich could truly follow Jesus. And if you're like me, what you're saying, maybe thinking right now is, yeah, someone needs to tell those rich people how to live. I'm tired of seeing all those rich people. And so I think it's always helpful um, to, to be reminded of our, our standing globally, um, that if, if you're in this room, um, chances are that you got here in a motor vehicle, you have a roof over your head, you have food more often than not on the table. Many of you own land, uh, property. Um, it, to live as a, even um, poverty, poverty line American is to be one of the wealthiest people in the world. And that is not a statement to uh, kind of bring any shame or any uh, discomfort among any of us, but simply to recognize that we are people who have been blessed by God's goodness. And that is what, what some of what we're going to see in this passage today is not what those rich people ought to do with their money, but how we might follow Jesus well with what God has given us. Whether, um, whether you are doing quite well for yourself and your 401k looks great, or whether you're paycheck to paycheck and um, you know, just trying to make ends meet. It's also worth pointing out that this isn't um, you know, a description of some sort of like socialistic government. It's not really commenting on a form of government one way or the other. It's not making a pro or con case for capitalism or socialism or anything. It has nothing to do with that. This is um, a spirit of sharing that more than a compulsion of sharing. I like how it says, from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money to take care of anyone who had need. This was voluntary. It was something that was prompted by the Holy Spirit, where this community of believers, when they would come together and they would see their brother or sister in need of something, and voluntarily and prompted by the Spirit, they would sell of what they had. They would give of their wealth in order to meet that need. This is a, this is a description of, of the way the early church lived together, not, not a prescription of a form of government or even a way of doing church specifically. It does call back to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 15, verse 4. However, there should be no poor among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. I think we see these early believers in the book of Acts, having taken this to heart and the Spirit empowering them to live this out. So if this isn't a prescription of you know, socialism or a form of government, um, you know, what might it be for us? I think the biblical word that is helpful is that of stewardship. A steward is someone who is put in charge of someone else's property or finances in order to take care of it, to manage it, and to ensure that it is done well. It's, for us, it's an understanding that the earth is the Lord's 
and everything in it. The world and its inhabitants belong to God. It's an understanding that everything that we have is not our own, but it is truly God's. As I said, no one, all believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared in all that they had so that there was no one in need among them. It's an understanding that anything that we have is a gracious gift um, that God has given us in order that we might do with it um, what he would do with it. That's what a, a steward would do is do what the owner would do with those belongings, with that property. What's ours is truly God's. We see this right at the beginning in um, Genesis chapter 1, right? We see that God created man and woman in his image, and he gave them instruction to be fruitful and multiply, to work the earth. Like th- They were commanded to be stewards over the earth, not to abuse it, not to um, use it up for all they can get, but to care for it, to cultivate it, to grow. And the same idea continues when we're thinking of finances, when we're thinking of what we have with our money. Stewardship is an understanding that what is ours is truly God's. It's also a trust, a trust in God over a trust in the number of zeros at the end of the bank account number. I like uh, Paul writing to his pupil, Timothy. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I would suggest that for most of us, when we fail to be generous, it's not because primarily we're very vain and materialistic and we want to collect all the cool stuff. It's more often motivated, is it not, by fear that we don't have enough to give, that we have to make sure we have this, we have to make sure we have ourselves taken care of. And then maybe if there's some leftover, maybe if there's some extra, then maybe we could throw a few shekels here or there. I know we don't have shekels now, but, you know, you get the idea. I think it's fear that keeps us from being generous, which is why Paul instructs Timothy to remind those of us of any means not to put our hope in those financial means, in our wealth, because it is uncertain, it is fleeting. It can very easily be here today and gone tomorrow. But to put our hope in God, who is the one who blesses us, who is the one who provides for us, who is the one who takes care of us. And it's also a understanding of the biblical teaching that it is indeed better to give than receive. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, 
and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So we're seeing in this early Christian community a proclamation of the gospel, a people willing to go out and boldly tell those around them the good news that Jesus Christ has come for them and wants them and to save them, to give them eternal life. And when they face opposition, which Jesus told them to expect, they pray for more boldness. And in that boldness, we see, much like we saw in Acts chapter 2, another description of a community of people boldly living generously. Luke next provides us two accounts to give us a, a picture of um, kind of what this looked like. And uh, it's a, a brief, positive account, and then a less brief, less positive account of what happened. So we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 4, verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Not as good. <clears throat> then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. That escalated, huh? Great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that, that is the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. 
oh, <laughs> okay. What are we to do with that? Let's start with a little bit of just what we can understand about who these people were from the text. We see Joseph, who was called Barnabas. He was a native of Cyprus. He was a Levite. So as a Levite, he was likely part of the social elite in the Jewish culture. As a landowner, he was a part of the upper crust in Judea. I've read that maybe as few as 5% of Jews at the time owned land. So Barnabas sold a field and brought the money to the apostles to distribute. So here then is a rich man, a member of the elite of his society even, modeling this spirit-prompted generosity. He became aware of a need, and he realized he had the means to meet that need. And through the spirit's prompting, he sold land and brought everything to the feet of the apostles, said, here, use this, use this to meet this need. But then at the beginning of chapter 5, we read of two more rich people, Ananias and Sapphira. We read that they too sold a piece of property and laid the money at the apostles' feet, but they had lied about how much they were giving. They kept some of the proceeds for themselves, which Peter says, essentially, that would have been fine. You had every, it was your property. You had every right to sell it if you wanted to and then give us whatever amount of the money you wanted to give. But they didn't do that. They wanted to look like they were giving everything. They wanted the appearance of holiness, of generosity. They wanted the praise of their fellow man. They wanted to look in their community as though they were just like this Barnabas who was giving all for the sake of those in need. So they were lying. They were deceiving. In a sense, they, they were stealing from God. Again, not because they didn't own the property, not because they didn't have a right to sell it and give whatever amount they thought was helpful to give, but because they wanted it to appear as though they were giving everything when in fact they were not. Their motivation was not that of the generosity of spirit. Their motivation was to elevate themselves. You can picture they, they had the means. I can, I can imagine, this is me imagining, they can imagine the conversation, right? Like, man, everyone's giving their the stuff and look at how everyone looks up to these people. We could, we could, we got some land. We could, we could sell some of it. We, I mean, we don't have to give it all. You know, we'll set aside some. We'll just keep that in the bank. But, but as far as anyone knows, we're gonna, we're, we sold everything. And give it to them. Look, it's the best of both worlds. We're gonna look like we're gonna give money. It's gonna, that's good. We're gonna, we're gonna look like we are the, just the greatest. They're gonna love us. Everyone's gonna love us. 
man, we're still going to have some money. Yes. I imagine that's how the conversation went. I don't know whether I was Ananias or Sapphira in that conversation. I just, <laughs> that was it. That was how it went. Um, but this, isn't this how we so often rationalize our sin, how we justify to ourselves? I mean, it's not hard to understand how they justified that to themselves, right? We're still doing good. We're still bringing money. We're still selling some of our profit and, and, and giving it so that it will be distributed to those in need. It's a win-win. And it maybe could have been if they were just honest about it. If they didn't try to claim that they were doing something they weren't doing. Now, it doesn't explicitly say this, but I think the text clearly implies that they wanted the credit that they saw Barnabas receive without the full sacrifice, without the full cost, without truly trusting in God and being generous with everything that they had. So what are the results? You know, I, I wonder if, if many of you are like me. When you see a text and it says that immediately they dropped dead, do, do you picture um, a finger from the sky and a lightning bolt coming down and zapping? <laughs> because I kind of, I get that kind of mental picture, right? Like, Peter, they lied, Peter calls it out, and then God goes, zap, gotcha. That's right. It's helpful to notice that that might be a mental picture that we can generate, or maybe just I can generate and, you know, enlighten you guys with. (laughs) But it's not what the text says. The text simply says, that when Peter said what he said, Ananias died. And then when Peter said what he said to Sapphira, she died. The way I worded that makes it sound like Peter did it. That's not what I'm saying. Um, Theologian Scott Spencer says that one can scarcely imagine a more shameful scenario than two of these community members lying about their financial dealings, whether big or small, in a public setting where community judgments were rendered before the sacred fellowship of God and the Spirit, Peter and the apostles, and Barnabas and others who laid total proceeds from the property sales at the apostles' feet. And the fearful force of this shame comes crashing down on Ananias first and then his wife when each hears within this holy assembly that their error has been exposed. As much as anything, it is exposure that affects their expiration. I just want us to be able to acknowledge that the text does not say God zapped them with a lightning bolt or Peter yelled so forcefully that they were terrified and dropped dead. I think if you, and I imagine at some point this has happened for you, it's happened for me, but have you ever had your sin exposed in a way you weren't expecting in front of others? It doesn't feel good. 
It is a striking and stunning experience. And I don't think it's that hard to imagine that their shame of being exposed was enough to simply take the breath away from them. Now, as I say that, I should also say that it is probably most commonly historically understood as a form of divine punishment, that they died because God took their lives as a result of their sin. And if that is indeed the, the way in which we should understand that, I think there's a few good things we can understand from that too. For one, we know something that the early church didn't. Uh, this is the exception and not the rule of life in the New Testament narrative. We don't see story after story after story of failure and sin and people dropping dead on the spot. This was unique. This was something different. This isn't the way of life. And it's worth remembering that the wages of all sin is death. The fact is that we believe in a holy God who has the right to take any and every one of us right now based on any, any number of sins that we've committed. So we praise God for his mercy that he does not, that he views us through Christ and his perfection, that we may take on his righteousness. We see that the deception, the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira was called out in this community, and rightfully so, because it ruins fellowship with God and one another, and they experience that quite dramatically. And furthermore, if this were the kind of thing that was the way this early church operated, how quickly would it tarnish the reputation of the church? See a bunch of people who say one thing, but do another. It's not hard to imagine how that could tarnish the reputation of a community of people. And so Luke tells us after both Ananias and Sapphira pass, that great fear falls upon both the church, all who were there and saw it, and also those who heard about this. It's not just the insiders, it's the outsiders too. And so as we finish chapter 5, I want us to consider this great fear um, and uh, in light of Aristotle. Yeah, I know. Aristotle's instruction to fear the right things for the right purpose in the right manner at the right time. This fear does not, we see, move the church to a cowardly retreat, but a bold advance, even in the face of further resistance. So we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 5, verse 12, and we're going to read through verse 40. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, this 
likely is referring to outsiders. No one else would come in. Um, you know, people dropping dead kind of has that effect. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So this, this wasn't, uh, you know, like, oh, cool, people are dying. Let's all go flock to this. But it was, it was still the Spirit of the Lord at work, still bringing people to a believing, salvific faith in Jesus through the testimony of this church. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. So then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell all people all about this new life. Okay. Angel breaks me out of jail. I'll probably do what he wants. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious. And wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, 
and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band in a revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case I advise you, leave these men alone. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. This just struck me as I was reading, but I love if their purposes or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. And here we are today. It did not fail. Something that I learned in uh, preparing this message that I did not know before, this is not the only time that Gamaliel shows up. Um, He also shows up in Acts 22, verse 3, when Paul is giving his credentials for um, his, his Jewish excellence. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I just like, oh, look at that. The guy, this Gamaliel that Paul references and said, that, that was my teacher? That's who I studied under? Was someone of great wisdom and influence and standing and respect. Because when he stood before the entire Sanhedrin, all of the religious leadership of Israel, and, and told them to not do what they were about to do, they listened to him. I didn't know that. Now you do too. More to the point, however, we see through this as the follow-up text to the plight of Ananias and Sapphira that when we're talking about being bold in our stewardship and generosity, we're talking about more than just our money. We're talking about how we live our lives. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know? That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This community was bold. They were bold in their generosity to give of what they had to meet the needs of others. And they were bold in their proclamation of the good news of Jesus. And they face continual opposition, which is why it required boldness to begin with. And I think if we're honest, many of us recoil against this idea of stewardship of our finances and our, our whole lives. 
we find upon reflection that in, in many cases we're in this for what God can do for us. And when things aren't going well, aren't going the way we think they should, we question God and wonder if we should even bother. I mean, if, if God's even real, if, if any of this is worth our time and effort, or if there's something better we could do. We approach church and our faith as consumers, not as stewards and servants. We're in this because, in theory, there could be some pretty great benefits at a pretty low cost. Salvation's free. But when the cost is too high in the moment and the benefits are too little, we're tempted to bail. We're tempted to hold back, keep a little nest egg to the side, you know, just in case. But we know that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gave his all for us. And so after being arrested and flogged, which sounds unpleasant, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Most of us have a hard time rejoicing in our suffering. So we must look at Jesus dying on the cross and see that out of his suffering, God brought the greatest good. And so we know that no matter what happens, he will be glorified. If he allows us to suffer for his sake, we know it's not because he doesn't love us. He doesn't care about us. He's forgotten us. No, praise God, we know it is because he will use it for his glory and the salvation of others. Friends, may we be a community of believers, emboldened by the Holy Spirit, to be good stewards of all that God sees fit to give us. Generous with our money to meet the needs of others and generous with our lives, even to rejoicing when we suffer for Jesus' sake.